Nehemiah chapter 9, turn, uh, well, even if you don't turn there, I'll read it and then we'll get into it together. But I just want to read these three verses because it's really uh, speaks to why we pray for revival and what God wants to do in our individual lives, but us collectively. Nehemiah chapter 9, starting verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Well, that's serious, isn't it? They've been fasting. They're in sackcloth. They've put dust on their heads. Verse 2, then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood, which you're doing right now, they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They're like, we, this is a, a we statement, we, Lord, have sinned. They're not saying they or just even me, we. And they stood up in their place twice here, it says they stood and read from the book of the law, which we're doing right this second, of the Lord, their God, for one-fourth of the day. All right, we're not going to leave for a while. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so <laughs> one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth, so now it's half the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped. Lord, you talk about a church service. Half the day, standing, confessing, praying, worshiping, and reading the word. God's looking down from heaven saying, I think they're serious. Let's pray. Lord, we bow our heads and we bow our hearts. Lord, in this room, we need to hear from you. We pray that you'd soften our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes, that we might see you and how much you love us, but also, Lord, how you're calling us into deeper waters of surrender and faith. And Lord, you're willing to graciously forgive anything in this room. Lord, even now, I pray that you'd cleanse the sins that are many among us. And Lord, that you would be merciful and gracious. We pray for revival. I need revival. Lord, our people, our marriages, our families, this church, Lord, the churches down the street and around this city, we all need revival. We need to be restored. We need you, Lord, to perfect us in righteousness. We need, Lord, you to take your burning coal and touch our lips, Lord, which really need to be purified. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do a work that only the Spirit of God can do. We want to get in the right posture as the children of Israel did then. And, Lord, we don't have dust or sackcloth, but we can have humble hearts. And we pray that you'd hear us, you'd heal this land. We just recently had elections. Lord, we know that uh, elections aren't going to solve our problems. We know that money's not going to solve it. We know that success isn't going to solve it. But, Lord, we know that surrender to Jesus will solve it. And so, Lord, we pray for revival here and outside these four walls. And, Lord, bless and anoint this service in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you imagine doing that for half the day? I mean, I had, the, only, the only guys that are even close to the veterans, they stood a few times. You know, everybody else is like, you know, we, that was like two minutes. Turn with me, Nehemiah 9. We just read the passage. If you're taking notes, you see we'll not only have the uh, ninth chapter here that we'll get into. In just those three verses, uh, we're going to uh, cover the rest of the chapter um, on the 25th on our baptism uh, Sunday. But we'll also have the Lord's Supper, the uh, taking of communion just a bit as well. But if you remember back and just kind of by way of review... 
Um, I don't know if you're here when we did the eighth chapter. It was a two-part thing where we went through chapter eight. As we saw in chapter eight, on the first day of the month, the first day of the seventh month, the month of Tishri. So on the first day of Tishri, the seventh month, all the people that were in Jerusalem and Judah, they gathered, and the people, remember it was the people that requested of Ezra, of Nehemiah, and the priest that the book of the law would be open. They said, please read the law to us. Open the book of the law. And it would be read to them. And in their dryness was a thirst for the water that only God's word could quench. Sometimes people are thirsty and they don't even know it. I'm thirsty right now, by the way. But, uh, but I'm thirsty for water, but I'm also thirsty for the word of God. How about you? The amazing progress of the city and the walls were making an impression on their hearts that they too would be rebuilt, refreshed, restrengthened. You ever seen a house that they say has good bones that looks like a dilapidated mess and then it's redone? That's what God wants to do with people. We saw in the reading of the law that the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Booze, which had been ignored for at least 170 years, were again observed. They came back together and, and observed that God had commanded it, but they had neglected. There was an immediate sorrow, if you recall, up in, um, up in verse uh, 9, the people began to mourn. There was an immediate sorrow, in chapter 8, that is. There was an immediate sorrow, but he... And the priest, meaning he being Ezra, and the priest, and the, uh, they encouraged the people to first receive the message of the word with joy. To receive it with joy. Like dry sponges soaking up cold water. They stood for hours right out of the gate. When they started reading the word in chapter 8, they stood for hours listening to the word of God, being reminded of the truths, being softened, being instructed what the word meant, what their responsibility of God was, and, and how God had spared them thus far. And hasn't God spared us of a lot of things as well? He spared us of a lot. You see the news, and you're like, that could have been me. could have been me in that place. That could have been me. It could have been me in that situation. He spared us of much. They had been spared of much. And they received the word with conviction, but also with a joy that they could re-enter that relationship with God, that God would allow them back in, that they could begin to walk in the things that Moses had commanded and Moses had given with the writing of the law. They begin to share with each other, brother and sister, neighbor, they begin to share with each other the scriptural insights. They went out and built the booths that were prescribed. Remember they had for the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, they had to build these booths, and they went out and built them as the law had required. And they began to wait on the Lord for the full week as it, as it was uh, required. They consecrated that week. They bowed their heads. They rejoiced in the Word. By the way, don't wait till you feel like rejoicing in the Word. Just rejoice in the Word. And they were open to the Spirit of God. Are we open to the Spirit of God? Understand that God was willing to heal God was willing to transform, but they had to be open. God's always ready. They had to be open. 
not just the word to be open, but their hearts to be open. We have to be open, don't we? Whenever the word of God is proclaimed, first and foremost, people must be open to hearing from God. The word will be proclaimed, but we have to be open to it. Jesus said, he that has ears, let him what? Let him hear. He also said, speaking of the word of God, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they hear me. Isn't that amazing? Jesus said, I could show up personally, and many people still wouldn't listen to me. We know this is true. Judas heard from Jesus constantly, didn't he? Lots of people heard from Jesus. Jesus said, if they won't listen to the word, they wouldn't listen if God came down out of heaven and spoke directly to them. It's hard to believe that, but that's what Jesus said, and it's true. In other words, if we will not hear and submit to the written word, we wouldn't hear if God spoke audibly to us. We'd still, yeah. I don't have time for that. That's not important to me. But thankfully, the people here are open, aren't they? They are open. They're not ignoring. They're not resisting. But they're rather seeking the grace of God. Are we seeking the grace of God? And it's by grace that they've been made ready for these next steps, ready for a completed work, ready for forgiveness. We have to be made ready for forgiveness. You know that? God has to make us, he has to make the, the solution ready, but he has to make us ready. They're ready to make changes. The people here are ready to make changes. They're ready for revival. They're ready for divine atonement. We pray for revival, but are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? The only way to get ready for it is to get close to God. Have you been placing an empty cup under his faucet? Are you nowhere near it? Have you been placed in an empty cup? By the way, we all come empty, right? One of the things Moody says is just, God can't fill a cup until we've emptied our cup first. Because you've got to empty yourself before God will fill it with the Spirit. Now, granted, in a larger sense, in a larger sense, if God doesn't do the prompting, if God doesn't seek and save that which is lost, and He does, right? If God doesn't prompt, if God doesn't seek us out, if God doesn't shine a light in a dark place where there is no light, then we have no hope, right? None of us manufactured the cross. We were told about it. God presented it. He, Jesus said, I came to seek and to save. If God doesn't do the work of stepping into darkness, we have no hope. But he sends his word. He sent his son. He sends his servants. Here he sent Ezra and he sent Nehemiah. Two flawed men, but two men filled with the Spirit of God. He sent his servants. He brings conviction. He brings his own grace, and he brings his own love. And God himself readies both the remedy and the redemption that they needed and we still need, right? God readies it. God makes it available. Their free will choice, and ours today, is to be ready to respond, isn't it? God's going to provide. They have to be ready to respond. We have to be ready to respond. And they move closer, don't they? They move closer. They step forward and say, read the word to us, please. All right, what do you want, two minutes? No, half a day. Read, please read the word to us. They step forward and they respond with gratitude. They respond with humility. They respond with obedience. And by the way, 
It may cost them something. It's gonna, your legs are going to be tired after standing half a day. They weren't standing on like, uh, they didn't have like this thing that I have. I don't know what this is made of, DuPont or something made of it. It, it, it. It's easy on my knees. They didn't have all that. They just stand, get worn out, but also get filled up at the same time. And it might cost them something, but the exchange is worth it. And by the way, it's going to cost us something too when we move closer to the Lord. But it's going to be worth the exchange. The things that we'll give up, we'll look back and say, why was I even hanging on to that? Why did I think that was even important? If you're taking notes, or studying the word today, hearts made ready a gracious atonement. And as you look back at the text here, we talked about that back in chapter 8, they met on the first day of Tishri. But here we see it's the 24th day of the month. Now, on the 24th day of this month, verse, not, uh, verse 1, chapter 9, it's still the month of Tishri, which is September and October on our calendar. And what is taking place here is this solemn observation of the Day of Atonement, also called, you know this, word, this phrase, Yom Kippur. They're celebrating or commemorating, it's not celebration per se, but they're commemorating, they're observing the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. The most important holy day on the Jewish calendar is the Day of Atonement. It was normally observed on the 10th day of Tishri. It was normally on the 10th day. But here it is, it's 14 days beyond the 10th, it's now the 24th. The 10th was given to Moses as the day to observe it. And I believe the reason for this delay is that Ezra and Nehemiah and the leaders, I believe that they sensed that God was stirring the people, Not they, but they weren't fully ready. You ever know that God sometimes delays us a little bit because he knows we're not actually ready? He looks at us and says, I I think you need a little time to marinate on this. I think you're not quite ready for what I'm asking. And so I believe that the leaders realized that the people need just a little bit more time to get their hearts ready, to further prepare. You see, this day was all about dealing with sin. I know it's not a popular word, and it's not preached on that much anymore in the American church, but this day was all about dealing with sin. It was set aside to understand the seriousness of sin, but also to receive the gracious and merciful atonement. You know what atonement means? It means covering, right? The ark was put pitch on the ark. It had to cover, so it sealed things. God seals us and covers us with the atoning blood of Jesus. That's what atonement means, to covering. Through the blood sacrifice. And not just any blood sacrifice, but it had to be prepared precisely how God instructed it. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter, 19, uh, chapter 16. Leviticus 16. And before we read, let's pray again. Lord, we just thank you again for the presence of your spirit, we pray, Lord, that you would remove any distractions. And, Lord, that we would hear, not from me, but, Lord, that we would hear from the Holy Spirit and hear from heaven these words that you want to 
share with us, Lord, that uh, they would be changing us even now. May our hearts be softened in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Leviticus 16, in uh, verse 2, he says, Tell Aaron your brother not to just come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Verse 2, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull and a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. Verse 4, These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of goats as a sin offering. One is a ram and a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering. He goes on in verse 9 and 10. He talks about one of the goats is called a scapegoat. It's released into the wilderness. The other one, they lay hands on the goat and they pray and they enumerate and list out sins and that goat is killed. And then in verse 14, take the blood of the bull, because the bull is also killed, and sprinkle that on the mercy seat. Verse 20, same chapter, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle meeting, he shall bring the live goat, and here's the confession of that, and then one is released as the scapegoat, and one is sacrificed. And then in verse 30, drop down to verse 30, for on that day the priest shall make atonement or covering for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. This is what they're observing. You can go back to uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. This is what they're observing right here. This, what they're doing here, is the people have long since not observed this. And the leaders are reminding them, saying, you need atonement. You need a covering. You need the scapegoat. You need your sins to be dealt with. Now, the entire chapter of Leviticus 16, the whole picture of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the whole picture is that our sins require God's grace and God's mercy and God's sacrifice and God's salvation and God's atonement and all of that is in the person of who? None other than Jesus Christ. The whole picture is Jesus. The high priest is Jesus. The bull, the scapegoat, the blood, the mercy seat. Remember on the road to Emmaus, it said he opened up their eyes and told them that all things in the law were about him. It was all about him. The whole 16th chapter of Leviticus, it's all about Christ and his covering and his blood sacrifice. But again... The scapegoat, understand if you've ever heard that term, even today people use, unsafe people use the term scapegoat, they have no idea what they're saying. Next time someone says, says oh, have you been to a Bible study recently? <laughs> if they use the word scapegoat, say, have you been studying about Jesus? What, what are you talking about? Well, it starts in Leviticus chapter 16. I'm sure you're aware of this, right? <laughs> because the scapegoat, the two goats, one goat has to die and its blood be shed. The other goat, the sins are taken and out in the wilderness, and it would be a picture for us as far as the east is from the west. Jesus covers our sins, but he also removes our sins. So you need a living Savior and one that also died. One goat lives, one goat dies, but Jesus is the picture of both. He both died, and yet he lives. He both covered, and yet he removes. And so that's the picture 
Also in the 29th verse, and um, boy, I wish I hadn't had you turn, but it's back in verse 29, but trust me on here's what it says. He says in verse 29, Leviticus 16, 29, afflict your souls on this day. That's a strange term. We don't normally have that. Has anyone ever told you to afflict your soul? God has. He says, afflict your souls on the day of atonement. And what does it mean? What does God mean that to afflict the soul? It means to be humble. It means to bow low and to be downcast. In other words, get low in the presence of God and recognize. That's why they were putting dust and sackcloth on themselves because it was an outward expression of them afflicting their souls. In other words, saying, we're in a desperate condition. Now, again, this takes intentionality because we don't wake up thinking we're in desperate conditions. We wake up thinking we've got it all together. We wake up thinking, I'm really smart. I, I'm an organized person. I got my checklist. I got this. I got that. I know what I'm doing. I've organized my day. I've got a master's degree. I've got this. I've got that. I know. And God says, you don't have anything if I don't allow your heart to beat. Right? God says, you can't even guarantee your next breath. You don't have it all together, and you're more flawed than you are good. Right? So the people, God wanted them once a year to make such an understanding of this that that intentionality would carry them throughout the year. They would keep going back to that kind of memorial and remember, I desperately need the Lord. I desperately need the Lord. Do you wake up every day saying, I desperately need the Lord? I desperately need the Lord. That's kind of, it's saying to our soul, my soul needeth God, right? So we want to look at just a couple of things that was taking place in these three verses. The first, contrition. Contrition was taking place. Uh, what does it mean? What does contrition mean if you say, oh, that's a word that I'm not used to hearing? Contrition or to be contrite is to have a broken or a grieving spirit. It's to have a broken or a grieving spirit. True sorrow over sin. It's not just uh, sorrow to be, but specifically sorrow as God says, this is what I'm saying about this area. Now, much like the book of Jonah, you guys familiar with the book of Jonah? God tells Jonah, go preach to the Ninevites. God says, no, they're really bad. I'm not going to do it. God says, no, you are going to do it. Jonah says, no, I'm not going to do it. God says, you are going to do it. Jonah says, I'm not going to do it. Jonah says, I'm going on a boat. I'm going towards the British Isles. God says, no, you're not. You're getting thrown in the water. Whale takes you to, sh uh, to the shore, spits you out. You look like really bad now. Your skin is all, and now you're going to go to Nineveh looking a lot worse than had you just gone there when I told you to go there. <laughs> Now your skin's peeling, you look like something the cat dragged in, and now you're going to have to go preach anyway. And by the way, I know you can't stand them still because you think they're evil and you're good, but you're going to preach, and you're still not going to like them, and they're all going to repent. Proof God can use any of us, right? And that's what happens. And what happens is everyone in the city repents with sackcloth and ashes. I mean, the king down, the Ninevites were horrible. They skinned people alive. They impaled people, all of these things. And yet... They repented, and they humbly laid their souls before God. That's what happened. That's the affliction of the soul. By the way, even to this day, the book of Jonah is the book read at Yom Kippur. Those of you that are Jewish, you might be familiar with this. The book of Jonah is read in synagogues 
as part of Yom Kippur to express to the people what laying or afflicting the soul looks like. But there's sin that needs atoning, and the people, the people, if you look in verses 1 and 2, they gather there, they have this dust on their head, they separate themselves, they stand, they confess. We'll get to the confession in just a second. But the people, they had abused and compromised in many different ways. But one of the primary ways, and this is, God, this is just God's timing, we have a marriage uh, night this Friday night. Do you know one of the primary ways that they had compromised and abused God's law was in the area of marriage. Did you know that? That's why it says in verse 2, they had to separate themselves from the foreigners. They had altered or substituted their fleshly desires for the commandments of God. And don't we do that sometimes? We just kind of say, I know God says this, but I'm going to give a substitute. I, I think this will work better for me. And understand, for quite a while, there had been conviction a realization that their choices were wrong. Conviction is you know what I'm doing. When you're convicted, you know, all right, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be acting this way. I shouldn't be having this attitude. I shouldn't be responding in this manner. But we're convicted of it. That doesn't mean that we're going to do the right thing. It just means we know we're in the wrong. Conviction tells us that. But it's not enough. And they, had not, they, had, they did not have enough godly sorrow to take their conviction and turn... And do what God had asked them to do, is particularly in this area of marriage, understand that for quite some time, uh, God had been speaking to them about this. There was this mixture in the people of what was sacred and what was sin. This mixture, mixture of what's sacred and sin, particularly in the area of marriage. See, Jewish men had been marrying pagan wives. And when they married pagan wives, they were bringing their idols into their lives, into their home, their children. Matter of fact, when we get to the end of the book, you'll see Nehemiah preach a rather odd sermon where he starts grabbing people by the hair. You don't see this preaching too much anymore. But, uh, uh, to, because a few, a few stragglers still aren't willing to part with their sin. And he talks about that Solomon, in all of his greatness, brought a lot of wickedness in with his pagan wives. That's what, he, that's what he's going to point to near the end there. But here, he sa- it, it says that they separated. Many of the people were, had a contrite heart, and they were responsive to this. They had recognized that they were bringing in idolatry into their marriages. Brothers and sisters, what kind of mixture of what God calls sacred and what God calls sinful are we allowing in our life? What kind of mixture are we allowing in us? And what about our marriages? So God's laser focused on, on the institution of marriage here. The Lord put it on my heart months ago to have this marriage night. Why? Because God wants pure marriages, pure walks with Christ. Not just married people, single, widows, widowers. I mean, but because this isn't just, that's not the only issue he's dealing with, but it's one that's actually mentioned in verse 2. Specifically, they had to separate from these relationships. Understand that uh, there in Jerusalem, especially over the past few weeks, starting with the first day of Tishrei, uh, here in Jerusalem, the people were thirsty to be cleansed and to be restored in fellowship with God. The hunger for the word was genuine. The rejoicing and the waiting of the Lord, that was taking place. <coughs> the observance of the feast, 
All this was done with enthusiasm and genuine fervor. This wasn't fake. They really were gathering to be changed by God. And God had ministered to them where they were at. Tenderly, powerfully, collectively, like we're doing this morning. This is a collective thing. We're going to take the Lord's Supper collectively. They experienced the goodness of God rebuilding their walls, rebuilding their city, restoring the feast, and yet God was not done. God was still not done. Did you know that God, if you're here today, God's still not done? Why? Because you're breathing. Because you're still here. Because I'm still here. God is still not done. And he's far from done, and their lives are ours either. But the people, they're at a crossroads now. They're at a crossroads. It's been 24 days since the first day of the month. 24 days. They're at a crossroads. Get, uh, they could eat, at this point, as they come to the Day of Atonement, they've got a choice. They can either give some lip service to repentance, and if they do, they're going to tumble back down the hill into deeper bondage. Or, or they can truly cry out for mercy and respond with repentance, and God will lift them up the mountain of grace. That's the choice. They're at a crossroad. They're at the middle of the mountain, if you will. It's either fall back down or God lift them up to the place of now they're walking, you know, you know the hinds feet, right? Where they're firm in their faith and in their walk with the Lord. Many of the people, sadly not all of them, again, we see Nehemiah's message at the end of the book. Uh, sadly, not all of them, but many of the people here respond with real sorrow, real contrition. And they'll be blessed and refreshed in doing so. In Psalm 51, verse 17, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So they come with contrition. But they don't just come with contrition. We see confession here. Uh, and they separate themselves, and they stood and confessed their sins, the iniquities of their fathers. Understand that with salvation, we are saved Understand, we are not saved because of specific sins we've committed. I want you to hear this clearly. Salvation is not given to you to cover your specific sins. Like say, I have a problem with lying. I have a problem with lust. I have a problem with stealing. I have a problem with anger. God deals with all that, but it's not specific sins of why we need a Savior. We need a Savior because we're sinners, in other words, we're born sinners. We're born in sin. And because we're born in sin, we then commit specific sins. Some people have their strongholds. Some people have, their, they have different kind of things that they lean towards. But we're, our salvation is required or needed because we're born in sin, not the specific sins we go on to commit. Does that make sense? It's the sin nature that needs to be dealt with, not the specific Sins. We'll say, well, I hear them confessing specific sins. Yes, they are. We'll get to that in one second. Uh, furthermore, the final condemnation, to understand, this is from an understanding, you're talking to people, you're sharing your faith, the final condemnation of those who die in their sins will not be because of specific sins, although they will give an account of specific sins, plural, but the final condemnation is for rejecting the substitute for sin, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. Does that make sense? 
That's the final condemnation is for rejecting the remedy. That sin will not be overlooked. All other sins could be covered, but not the rejection of Jesus and his willingness to save and change. But the Ten Commandments do enumerate sins, don't they? They are specific. Say, so, well, if we're not, say, we're not needing salvation from specific sins, why are they named? Why did the priest have to lay hands on the goat and name sins, specifically name sins? Why are they named here? The Ten Commandments and the law spells out individual sins. Well, one of the marks of real repentance is to admit to God where we're failing. Amen? God says, yeah, I'm going to have you be specific, but really what you're being saved for is your sin nature and whether you accept or reject my son. But one of the marks of real repentance is to be honest with God and say this and this, Lord, and this, Lord. It's pretty concerning when a person can't or won't admit things, isn't it? Very concerning. When I'm counseling with somebody and I realize that they will not admit a sin area that is as obvious as to anybody else, I know we're going nowhere fast in that session, right? Again, we're born sinners, but the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, convicts us of specific sin. Paul said in Romans 7, 7, he would not have known covetousness but by the law. Paul said, the law exposed to me, hey, you've got a coveting problem. That's how he knew. That's how we know. And what God reveals, he then prompts us in our hearts to lay those sins at the feet of Jesus, to lay those individual sins. In fact, uh, when we've been saved, it's really after we're saved, God does the starting to work sanctification. He starts spotlighting things that before we didn't even think were sins. Didn't even dawn on us we were uh, sinning in things. God starts to reveal us things that we weren't even consciously aware of, such as gossip. I, I didn't realize that was a big deal, right? You know, uh, slander, little lies. They're not big ones, just little ones. Not keeping our word. Pride complaining, just to name a few. These are ones that you'll start to, as the longer you're saved, God will start to say, hey, I know you used to think that was no big deal, but I want you to be pure in that area. I want you to walk after my son. And again, we have repentant hearts. Not only do we confess these things, Lord, but we willingly have relationships with mature believers that will even confess to them. It's called accountability. We'll be willing to be accountable with other believers and say, hey, this is, this is something I'm doing, and it, it's harmful to the Lord. It's harmful to the body of Christ. It's harmful to people in my life. And we don't just go into a confessional. You've seen confessionals, right? You know, the mafia could do it, right? Forgive us for doing this. We're going to do it again tonight, right? You know, that kind of thing, right? <laughs> That's not confession, is it? That's not confession. It's not just getting things off our chest. No, real confession, it says they separate themselves from the foreign, they put away the idolatry. They put away the relationships that God said, I can't have you in that. You're, you're sabotaging my picture of marriage. They remove the hindrance between them and God. Uh, this is what it means to really confess, and that work of revival means confessing and forsaking the sin and leaving it. Jesus instructed not only that, one other thing here before we look at the last point, uh, it says, they stood and confessed the sins of their fathers as well. Uh, Jesus said, when you pray, forgive our sins and our trespasses in the family of God. Repentance is personal, but we also want it to be collective, right? We don't want just one person in here to be revived. We want every person in here to be revived. We want every person to be refreshed. We want every person to walk in newness of life. 
We'll be taking of communion together. We're not just a, I'm just going to take it by myself, you take it by yourself. No, he says, when you come together, it's a desire. <coughs> you know, we're, when we confess, we replace things. They stood, and then they, in verse 3, they begin to read the book of the law. When we uh, really confess, we're replacing what we've been doing with what God wants us to be doing. Instead of sinning, we're, start to, we, we're now singing. Instead of complaining, we're praising. Instead of covetousness, we're now giving. Instead of whining, we're now worshiping. Instead of lust, it's now self-sacrifice and real love. Instead of anger and tearing people down, instead it's kindness and building people up. God wants to change. I've seen some people that, you know, I love some of the pastors that God has saved that I've seen in my life that where some of those violent individuals you've ever seen before salvation are now some of the kindest individuals that you've ever seen. Paul was that way. See, this is what God does. When you really lay it at the feet of Jesus, there's a real change. But it always starts vertically, doesn't it? They had to stand before the Lord first before they could actually have their relationships right with people. And it always starts vertically. A.W. Tozer said, we are saved to worship God. All that Christ has done in the past and all that he's doing now lead to this one end. God has saved us to become, as Jesus said in John chapter um, 4, yeah, true worshipers. The true worshipers. We'll look at the last point here, consecration. And they stood and in their place and read from the book of the law and their God for one-fourth a day, another fourth they confessed and worshiped again. Half the day they're confessing and reading and worshiping. What does this have to do with consecration? Consecration, the word consecration means to dedicate. To dedicate. God wants every believer to dedicate their lives to him. Jesus put it this way, take up your cross and follow me. He said, your cross is your dedicate. He's saying, I'm laying down my life. I'm dedicating it. We say the word, I surrender my life to the Lord. And you take up a cross because you say, I've resigned myself as a living sacrifice. Right? I'm still alive, but I've died to my own desires. I've consecrated myself to the Lord. With consecration, always will come commitment and worship. A lifestyle of worship, not worship music, although that is inclusive of it, but a lifestyle of worship. And so the people, they, they read, they're praying, they're confessing, they're worshiping. If it's real consecration, guess what? It'll last. Did you know that? If you are really consecrated to your spouse, your marriage is going to do great. Yeah, you're going to have you're going to have some strong winds. You might have some things come against you, but if you're really consecrated to the Lord, you'll stay consecrated to your spouse. If you're consecrated to Jesus, everyone at the office may get into the certain you know, gossip, you'll abstain from it. If you're really, really consecrated to Jesus, everybody else might be uh, on their phones and porn, but you'll say, not me, no way, because the Holy Spirit says, I'm not doing that. If you really are consecrated to the Lord, you will say no to the flesh. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect, but God will give you. He, God is not a beggar. He's like, man, I wish I could help these people, but I don't have nothing to give them. If we consecrate, he'll give the power. Amen. He gives the power of the Holy Spirit. If the consecration is real, it will last. It'll last. It's not just emotion. 
It's not just guilt. It's not just some excitement. It's not peer pressure. Well, everyone else in the church is doing this. I I guess I should act like I like this. It's not even based on fear. That type of commitment will always fade fast, won't it? You know, when Jesus went to the cross, many forsook him. Their consecration wasn't genuine. It was based on a lot of other superficial things. But again, if there's contrition, if there's real contrition and there's real confession, then there'll be real consecration. Right? If the contrition's real, if the confession's real, then the consecration will be real. Many times before I got saved in 1995, I had asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, and I wasn't saved. Many times I'd, oh, Lord, get me out of this jam. You know, all that kind of, save me again, save me again. Save me for the 200th time. Not until 1995 when I truly, the consecration was real. Prior to that, I could never stay on the path. Notice the posture that people take. They stood, they confess. The posture, it takes a similar, similar posture in our hearts, doesn't it? It's that real confession, that real contrition, that real, Lord, I give you my life. God's prepared the atonement. He's offered full pardon. He's offered the promise of his help. Everyone else will kind of tell you they can help you, but they really can't. God really can. Are we ready to humble ourselves, allow him to change us, and to go forward in worship? Are we ready for that? The Lord's never let me go back to the way I once lived. Never, ever, ever. I, I'm, I'm not going back there. Not because I have the strength to not go back there, because I have Jesus living in me. And he's greater he that is in you than he that is in the world. Why would we ever go back? And the Lord's saying, you're at the crossroads. I want to lift you up the mountain, not tumble back down. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that as you called the people in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, you're calling us. Lord, you've shown us that it's not a goat, not a scapegoat. It's not the blood of a bull. It's not a once a year, but it was a once and out of all eternity there at Calvary, which we're going to commemorate in just a few minutes, Lord, where we remember your blood, the covering for our sins. And Lord, as we enter into this time of communion. I pray that we would humble our souls and just know that you love us and you want to forgive us.